You may be seated. Hold the line. This has been shouted by commanders to their troops arrayed in a battle line facing an enemy uh, throughout history. Hold the line, even though the enemy seems mightier, seems more in number, seems powerful enough to completely crush that battle line and break through, hold the line. It is an order that is given for the soldier to stand firm and not give way. The, the sensible thing to do while facing an enemy that is far greater is to drop your weapon, cast off your armament, turn and run in retreat. Wouldn't you agree with that? And that's exactly why the order hold the line is so important, not only in battles between human armies, but even more in the spiritual battle in which we find ourselves as the church of Jesus Christ. Paul is telling us here in Romans 6 in our passage today, hold the line, stand firm, fully equipped with the armament that God has given to you. Hold the line. Let us hear the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 and verses 10 through 13. We'll be focused today on verse 13, but I'll read the two verses that we considered last week. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Do you see, do you hear the order that Paul gives to you and to me and to all the church? Hold the line. And today we, we want to look at why we're able to stand firm, why we're able to hold the line, we will see that God has given his armor. So the first point is the armor of God. And the second point, he has given that armor that we would be the armed of God. And then, finally, we will look at the reality that we are the army of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we come to this passage today, I ask you to give us grace that you would open our hearts to hear what you would have for us, that, Lord, this would be your word being proclaimed, not my word, so enable me to be faithful. I would also pray for, for all of us who hear your word that we'd be faithful. Father, today I pray that we would be encouraged as we reflect upon 
the mighty thing that you have done in giving us this spiritual armor. And as you sovereignly work through this means of this armor, you preserve us. You enable us to withstand in the evil day and to stand firm. Oh Lord, you're a good God. You love your people. And you equip your people for battle. May we be encouraged with that today in Jesus' name. Amen. The armor of God. And here's the point I want to make. The armor of God is whole. And we see this in verse 10. Put on the what? The whole armor of God. We see it again in verse 13. Take up the whole armor of God. And I want to give you three ways that I see this armament being whole. And the first one is this. God's armor is whole in that it is definitive. It is all we need. It is complete. It is sufficient for the battle. I looked this up on the internet. I've never served in the military. I've never been arrayed in a battle line facing an enemy that is planning on killing me. But I did look up on the internet what a modern, modern American soldier might take into battle. And as I don't have enough time to go over all of the various aspects of a soldier's gear. But I will tell you this. That a soldier who is equipped to go on a mission carries between 60 and 120 pounds of gear. Body armor, weapons, ammunition, electronics, and much, much more. Fully equipped. It, the soldier in our military is definitively equipped, having everything that is needed to accomplish the mission. And so is the Christian soldier to be definitively equipped. And the armor that we will, that we will spend time over the next several weeks looking at is exactly what God has given that his soldiers will be perfectly equipped, lacking nothing for the battle. You see, the armor of God is whole. It is definitive. It is complete. It is sufficient. And the second way it's whole is this. It's whole in that it is dependable. There is a 0% fail rate in the spiritual armor that God has given to his people. If you look with me in verse 11, that, that this, this armor is able, it makes the soldier able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then in verse 13, this armor is dependable so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I go to the store and buy something, I, I like to see that little sticker, Made in America. And that's a very popular theme today, bring 
companies back to America, do more manufacturing in America. I drive a foreign car that is made in Indiana, so yeah, it's made in America, even though Mr. Subaru is the head of that company. Made in America. We like that, understandably so. It gives us a sense of pride. And when we think about the war industry, those, those companies that make the weapons and the gear and the ammo and all that stuff, America has a huge war industry. We supply not only our army, but a lot of armies around the world with the implements of war, that gear that we talked about earlier. But here is the, the reality. Made in America does not mean 0% fail rate. Body armor does not hold up sometimes. A round might pierce the body armor. Tanks break down. Airplanes can't fly. Weapons become jammed. It's not a 100% fail rate. In the human-made implements of war. But God's armor is whole in that it is dependable. There's a 0% fail rate because it's not made in America. It's made in heaven. It is forged by the very hand of God, so to speak. And it is given to us to wear. It has a 0% fail rate. It is whole. It is complete. It is dependable. And the third way that I see this armament being whole is that it is decisive. Decisive in that it is the decisive factor for you and me standing firm and withstanding in the evil day, the battle. It is the determining factor. And, and listen to what Paul says here. To stand against the schemes of the devil, to be able to withstand the evil day, to stand firm. All of those sayings that Paul gives in these verses is because this armament is the key reason we stand and we hold the line in the battle this evil day. You know, last, last week we, we ended looking at that that phrase the Apostle Paul, be strong in the Lord, that, that imperative, that, that command. And we looked at how he qualifies that, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of the Lord. In other words, the power that the Apostle Paul says is needed here is not our power, it's not really about our doing, but it's the might and strength of the Lord given to us. It is not our power, but God's power. And his means, his power, and, and his power working through this armament, which, which are his means, is the decisive factor in the battle. It is what determines our standing firm, even in the greatest struggle against the greatest enemy. Well, when I was thinking about this being the decisive factor, my mind went to that wonderful account in 1 Samuel 17 of the little shepherd boy David standing before the mighty warrior Goliath. Do you remember that story? 
And it's interesting that, that David pre- prevailed against Goliath. Why? Because he didn't retreat, because he, 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 he stood there and picked up his little slingshot and those five stones and was such a good shot. Is that really the reason? No, David actually tells us the reason in verses 45 and 47. Listen to this from 1 Samuel 17. Then David said to the Philistines, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. Now listen to this. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. Did you hear that? The Lord saves not with swords and spears. The Lord saves. The Lord enables us to stand firm in the battle, not because we are such good soldiers and because we are brave, because we don't throw down our weapons and turn and run. No, David finishes, the Lord saves because the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Isn't that beautiful? What aspect of the battle are you facing today? Maybe you feel overwhelmed. Maybe you feel like doing the, the sensible thing, throwing everything down and running in retreat because you feel like the enemy is so close on your heels. Dear friend, hear what David says here. The battle is not won because of sword and spear. The battle is the Lord's. And... The Lord has given us the whole armor, the armor that is dependable and definitive and decisive, that we may be able to stand confidently in the battle because it's His and He will bring the victory. Well, the battle is the Lord's. The whole armor of God, it's his, and he gives it to us so that we would be armed. And so what do we do with this armament that is is given to us? The Apostle Paul tells us, he actually tells us a couple of things that we are to do in, in, in the battle. Well, a helmet is only good if you put the helmet on, right, to protect you. And a shield is only as good as you actually take up the shield and, and hold it in front of you so that you can be safe behind it. And a sword is only as useful if you actually take it up and begin to use it in the intended way. And we find in verses 10 and 13 two ways that we are to deal with this armament or respond to God giving us this armament. And the first one is to take up the whole armor of God. Take it up. And the second one is to put on the whole armor of God. That is, take it up and use it. And we're not talking here about letting go and letting God, faithless actions. No, we are to take up and put on by faith, faith faith-fueled action. 
that we would stand in the battle, that we would be armed for the battle. We find a, this, the, these two statements here of the Apostle Paul, take up and put on, being a wonderful illustration of a biblical principle, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Sometimes they're viewed as opposed to one another, but they're not. God is 100% sovereign. The battle is the Lord's, right? And we are 100% responsible. Take up and put on. So we take up the whole armor of God, every piece of it. We leave nothing out. We put on the whole armor of God. We use every piece of it. You know, I like to uh, ride my bike, and I ride my bike all over West Little Rock, and I am amazed, and I don't want to sound judgmental, although it's probably going to sound judgmental. I don't mean it to be. Well, maybe I do. I don't know. But I'm amazed at how many fellow cyclists I see not wearing a helmet. I wear a helmet, and there's, there are several reasons, but the chief one is that I have fallen on my bike. And it is so easy to have an accident, to hit a pothole, uh, to slide on rocks, to be pushed off the road by a car. And if you don't have your helmet on, you could suffer with what could be a tragic blow. I think one of the saddest stories that, that I've heard was a fellow minister, a fellow PCA minister, a young RUF minister some, several years ago who loved to mountain bike and he had his bike, his mountain bike repaired and all he wanted to do was to take his bike out in the driveway and just hop on it right quick just to make sure that it was in good working order before he went on his ride. I've done this before. I think we're prone to do this, but didn't really want to take the time to put a helmet on, so he just hopped on his bike just to do a couple of spins around his driveway. Must have been a big driveway. But he had an accident, fell, hit his head, and within a month, he had died. It's tragic, heartbreaking. And I tell that story because we can so easily try... I'm not criticizing this, this particular situation. It really is a tragic story. Uh, I rode a four-wheeler without a helmet and had a very, very serious accident where I could have been killed. So I am one who has made the same decision about not being fully armed. <laughs> but it's amazing, isn't it, that we can... Hey, I'm just going to run here. I'm just going to run, do that. I don't need to go through the motions, take the time to be fully equipped, to put on the whole. And it can turn out to be bad. And, and let's look at this from a spiritual point of view. I'm just going to run in and quickly get on the computer to, to look up something. I'm just going to run to the grocery store quickly to, to, to get something. You know, I, I'm just going to run here. I'm just going to do that. I really don't need to be all, to be all that mindful of spiritual battle and temptation, those sorts of things. I'm just going to run over here. Just 
And the point that I want to make is that we need to remember that the battle that we're in, there is no demilitarized zone. There is no periods where the, the hostilities, there's been some kind of agreement to pause the hostilities, a little peace treaty. There is absolutely no period where there isn't the spiritual battle raising, raging. And therefore, we need to be, we need to take up and put on the whole armor of God 24-7, all the time. Put the helmet on. Even if you think, eh, it's just going to be just a brief little trip. Think of Nehemiah. Remember Nehemiah's day when they were rebuilding the wall? They had enemies trying to kill them. And what did they do? The workmen had a a trial to build the wall in one hand and their sword or javelin in the other. They, they understood that at any moment the enemy could come and they needed to put on the whole armor of God 24-7. And the reason that we need to put on this whole armor of God and not think that we can go without part of it just because we're strong enough is because the armor of God is God's means to preserve us in the battle. In other words, we take up the whole armor, we put it on because in doing that and God being with us, He is going to work through that armament that we might stand in the battle, that we might hold the line. God preserves his people. And I want to read just a couple of passages about God preserving his people. Isaiah 43, 1 through 3, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The greatest battle, God is with us, using His means to persevere, persevere us in that battle. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And think about the greatest struggle that you have ever had. The, the moment when you felt like the enemy was going to push through your line and crush you. And God says, fear not. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isn't that encouraging to the Christian warrior? And then what Jim read earlier from Isaiah 40, in verse, verse 29, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. This is God. 
who has promised to persevere his soldiers in the battle using the means that he has given. Christian, take up the whole armor of God. Put on every piece of it and see the presence and power of God working through these means that you would withstand in the evil day and stand firm in the battle and armed hold the line and not give way. That's the promise that we have here in Scripture. Now, I want to just give you one, one other word uh, from Scripture before we get to the, the third and final point. The battle really is fierce, isn't it? The spiritual battle that we're in is so much greater than Covenant Presbyterian Church, any one of us. This is sensible for us to fear. But yet, we are to have confidence as the armed soldiers of God armed with his armament. And Jesus said this in John chapter 10, that that passage that speaks to his being the good shepherd. He said this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. They will never perish in the battle. They will hold the line. And not even the greatest foe will be able to snatch them out of God's hands. Is that an encouragement to you as a Christian warrior? You may not admit it, but you know you're in a fight. And that brings us to the third point, where I want us to look more specifically at where these battle lines are drawn, where God's army is arrayed in a battle line. If you look at verse 13, it says, The evil day, it makes reference to that. We talked about the war last week, didn't we? And all that we talked about last week really is descriptive of the evil day. And this evil day, this this day of battle, where where the whole world is, is a battlefield, the whole cosmos is a battlefield in this spiritual battle. It's a battlefield where, where the army of God is, is arrayed and there are no foxholes. There's no foxhole to jump into. This battle is not trench warfare like during World War I. We don't even have a, a physical fortress wall that we can go and hide behind when the battle gets tough. Now, we do have a fortress. We'll sing about that in just a moment. A mighty fortress is our God. But I'm talking about when we're in the midst of the battle... There is no physical barrier. There there is no fortress that we can retreat to where we no longer have to worry about the battle. The battle is always 
upon us. And we are an army that is arrayed in a battle line. And here's the point I want to make. The only thing that stands between our standing firm and being overrun by the army, it's not a foxhole, it's not a trench, it's not a fortress, it's the armor God has sovereignly given to us. And all the more reason for us to take it up and to put it on. And this battle is everywhere at every time. And we're called to hold the line. Think of the, think of the, the different areas of our life where we, we hear God saying, Covenant Presbyterian Church or Christian soldier, hold the line. Hold the line against a post-Christian culture. Don't waver when culture tries to change your mind and force your actions against biblical truth. Hold the line against a government that so much of the time seems to be at odds with the eternal truths of God. Stand your ground. Hold the line against the onslaught of moral decay, not just in America, but all over this globe. Hold the line against abortion. Hold the line against sexual immorality. Hold the line against redefining marriage and whatever is going on with redefining gender. Hold the line. Take up the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God and stand your ground and see that God will Preserve you in the battle. He'll do it. Stand firm. Hold the line. That's what the army of God is called to do in this passage. But I want to go to, I think, the absolute greatest area where we are called to hold the line. And it's to hold the line in the battlefield that is our own hearts. One of the greatest mistakes that we can make as Christians is to think our greatest enemy is out there. It's culture, or it's that crazy policy that our government's passed, or it's, or it's some, some wacko you know, that hates God and they're trying to get us. The greatest enemy, my greatest enemy, is right inside here. You see, I'm not even your greatest enemy. You are your greatest enemy. And I want to prove that to you, just in case you don't believe me. Just go to God's Word. Take your Bibles and turn, if you would, turn to James or take your iPhone, whatever you've got. It matters not to me. Take the Word of God in whatever format and turn to James chapter 1. And I want to read, I want us to read, I'll read, you follow along, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, is, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it, is, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I think this passage speaks directly to the statement I made that the greatest enemy is within our own hearts. The greatest battle that we will ever fight is the battle of standing firm in Christ in our own hearts against our sinful desires. Every one of us here today is tempted. My greatest temptation may not be yours, yours may not be mine, but every single person in this sanctuary today is tempted. And temptation can come on us when we least expect it. Temptation can come on us when we expect it. Temptation comes at us. It's just the way we are tempted. And when we are tempted and we succumb to the temptation, it's, it's often handy to be able to blame someone else. Remember Adam? God, it's your fault because you gave this woman to me. Right? James says right here in, in this text that God is sovereign, yes, but he does not. He's not the author of temptation. God does not make us sin. And here's something else. It would, I wish this were true. Oh, this would make my life so much easier. That when I could sin, I could stand before you and say, the devil made me do it. Right? And that doesn't job with Scripture either. Remember last week we talked about that the devil has power, but it's limited? He had to ask God for permission to tempt Job? So it would be handy to be able to say the devil made me do it and excuse myself from any responsibility for my sin, but that's just simply against Scripture. God doesn't make us sin. The devil doesn't make us sin. Who makes us sin? I'll tell you who makes me sin is me. And this is what James says here in this verse. The sin is not being tempted, facing temptation. The sin comes about when our own hearts move us to take it, to want it to feel like it is going to satisfy us. And so James says that here's the temptation and you are lured and enticed. The Greek word here means this. I'm going to use a modern day analogy. It means a fisherman takes a worm and puts the worm on the hook. He baits a hook. And that worm put out in the water is going to entice and tempt the fish to come and to bite it. I've yet see a worm. Now, some of you better fishermen, you, you may be able to do this, but I've yet been able to convince a worm to swim over, open a fish's mouth, and insert itself and hook the fish. I've, I've, yet, I've not been able to do that. Right? The fish gets hooked because the fish wants the worm. And we fall for temptation because we want what that temptation promises, right? 
And so what James is describing here is a spiritual battle in the heart that every single one of us in this room, in this sanctuary, is dealing with even today. The spiritual battle of the heart. The reason that we take the bait, the reason that we take that temptation is because of the sinful desires of our own heart. So when we sin, it's not God's fault. When we sin, it's not Satan's fault. He brings the temptation. He's a master at that, no doubt. When we sin, it's 100% our fault. And here is just a simple question that is a hard question. It's simple, but it's hard. It's, it's hard for me to, to ask you this question because in asking you this question, I'm asking myself this question. I don't know that I really want to ask myself this question, but I've got it written here, so I'm going to ask you, where has the battle line been drawn up in your heart? Where are you, where does it seem like that you're wavering because your sinful desires so want what that temptation is promising? You know, could it be some form of, of sexual sin? Could it be some issue of pride? Could it, could it be some, some idolatrous material thing? Could it, could it be... Just self-centered living. I mean, we could go on and on and on. And, and, and what I'm asking is, where is the worm on the hook dangling in your life? Think about that. And what Paul would shout to you, representing the true commander Jesus, is, Hold the line against that sinful desire in your heart. By faith, take up the whole armor of God. Put it on. Rest in the power, the strength of the Lord to enable you to withstand the onslaught of the enemy to stand firm in the battle. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, for each one of us here today, we, we have areas of our life where we feel like we are just nearing the point of the enemy breaking through our sinful desires overwhelming us that we would fall into grievous sin or any sin is grievous and father I pray today that that we might be reminded of the fact that we have not just some of the armor but the whole armor of God that is that was forged in heaven for us that is completely dependable and we're called to take it up and put it on. And the army of God, the soldier of God, through the means of his persevering work, 
we'll stand firm in the battle. And I pray that no one would leave here today, oh God, including myself, without seriously considering where the battle is in our own hearts and that we would flee to you and rest in your means by faith to stand firm in the battle. Father, I pray this because I am, as much as anyone, facing the war. We all are. And we need, we need your armor. And give us the grace to take it up and to put it on by faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.